Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, resume, proposal, any kind of writing or leadership, look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. Today is the second in my Writers on Resilience series. Sujata Massey has been one of my all-time favorite authors for 20 years. I discovered her years ago when she was writing the Rei Shimura detective series about a Japanese-American English teacher slash antique dealer who solves mysteries. In recent years, she's moved her novels to India. First, she wrote a historical saga called The Sleeping Dictionary, featuring an incredibly resilient young woman named Kamala. And then she began combining her love of mystery and history into the colonial era Purveen mystery series based on a real life person, India's first woman lawyer. Sujata's books regularly feature on my annual top books list. I posted photos and further details about Sujata's books on my website, including links to purchase. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now let's meet Sujata Massey. Hello, Sujata. Thank you so much for coming on to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Well, I'm happy to be here, Marie. I feel like you and I have been having conversations for a long time, but never in this venue. I know. You've long been one of my favorite writers, and I've given so many of your books away to my friends. And now you have 15 under your belt. Is that right? Yeah, it's about 15. The first one came out in 1997. That's The Salary Man's Wife. And the most recent one that came out is the Satapur Moonstone. And I have a new one coming out in June 2020. Oh, great. You mean June 2021? 2021, I should say. Oh, good. That's exciting. So it's already with the publisher and everything? Yeah, it's the same publisher who's been doing all my Indian mysteries, and that's Soho Press. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's go back to the beginning. And could you tell us about your life beginnings? What was your childhood like? Well, I was born in Britain in the mid-60s, and my father had emigrated there from India, and my mom had emigrated from Germany. So I was already like a triple nationality. (laughs) And then my family emigrated to the United States around the time I was five. We lived in the state of Pennsylvania and California briefly and settled in Minnesota. And I grew up mostly in Minnesota from second grade through, you know, the end of high school. And then I came to the East Coast to go to college here. And I wound up with a degree in the the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. And that's a creative writing kind of major is is the best way that I can explain it. Uh Aha. So your parents were uh, first generation immigrants. What was that like growing up to immigrant parents? Well, most of their friends were immigrants too. So we didn't really have a full on American, you know, Midwestern experience except for in our school environments. You know, it just it just felt like kind of a divided life, I would say. I would assume that your parents both spoke English pretty well then. Oh, they, yeah. Well, the English was a foreign language for both of them, but mm-hmm. it was their joint language. Mm, right. Um, 
You know, my father was a university professor, so it was easy for them to find friends that were, um, you know, sort of also global people. I think that a lot of their friends were like that. Whereas in my school, it was just, you know, people that were born and brought up in the Midwest. And it was, it was frankly really difficult to make friends in those years. I'll bet. Yeah. Was there a lot of prejudice, you know, feeling that you were happy? There was a lot of color prejudice. Mm -hmm. There was xenophobia. Mm -hmm. There was confusion over what religion we were. There was every kind of thing in the book. And plus I was bad at gym. Oh, no. (laughs) I was bad at gym too, Sujata. (laughs) That's hard. It makes it hard. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I was... So glad when high school was over. And that was part (laughs) of the reason that I wanted to go so far away to college. You know, I didn't want to see anybody from from my school environment. And I wanted to start over. Right. I can totally relate to that. Like, I've never gone to any high school reunion. (laughs) Neither have I. (laughs) When I went to college, I felt like I could relate to people on a different level, you know, than high school. So... I'm sure you were the same way. So then you ended up going to Japan. Was that right after college? No, there was a little bit of a gap. Um, mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get a job as a newspaper reporter straight out of college. Wow. I worked for the Baltimore Sun newspapers. Mm-hmm. And that newspaper company had a morning and an evening newspaper that came out every single day. These were the days when people used to really read their newspapers. (laughs) I worked for the evening newspaper and I was on the features desk and I wound up doing a lot of stories about interesting people, about culture, fashion, food, entertainment. So it was a really fantastic place for, you know, someone who's interested in those things. Yeah, what a plum job to get right out of college. Yeah, I was I was fortunate mm-hmm. and I had a great time. I loved being in a newsroom working with colleagues. It was a very diverse environment. So I had a lot of friendships across, mm. you know, race and class and ethnic origin. So it was a it was a really great time. And I would never have left if I hadn't fallen in love. And I fell in love with someone who had been my best friend in college, Tony, my husband. Mm -hmm. And he had a military commitment while he was in medical school because they had paid for a couple of years of his medical school. So because he had to work as a, what they called a, a Navy medical officer for a few years, you know, we knew that I was going to have to leave that job in that place in Baltimore. And we wound up being fortunate enough to move to Japan. And that was a really exciting place for me to just enjoy learning a language, enjoy learning about the cultural arts and start the creative writing that I hadn't done since college. What city in Japan did you live in? Well, the Navy base was in Yokosuka. Oh, Yo- is that the one near Yokohama? Yes, it it's oh. south of Yokohama. Okay. And we lived in a town called Hayama, which is where the emperor had his summer palace. Ah. So it was a very tranquil place. There wasn't even a train station there. The nearest station was Zushi or Kamakura. Oh, Um, Kamakura is so beautiful. Yeah. You know, hundreds of Zen temples and Kamakura and 
I spent a lot of time wandering through those temples. I mean, that was just blissful. It was almost like being on vacation for two years living. Oh, I'll bet. That's wonderful. Yeah. Where were you in Japan, Marie? So I was in Wakayama, which is about an hour from Osaka. The Japanese called it the Inaka, you know, <laughs> you know, way out of the country. But it was not that far from Osaka. And then I met my husband there, who's from Britain. And we met at a party through a mutual friend at a Robert Burns night. That's our funny story. He came to Wakayama for the party. And so then I ended up staying another two years after I met him. And he lived in Osaka. So I then I moved to Osaka for the next two years that I was there. But he had friends in Tokyo. We would go visit Tokyo. I remember going... Actually, I had it. We had these really good friends that lived in Yokohama, so we visited there as well and went to Kamakura. And I haven't been back since I left. I left in 1989. So, what that year? sounds almost like, yeah. like a love story out of my Ray Shimura <laughs> mystery. Well, you know why I love those books, right? I mean, yeah, totally. There's a lot of similarities there. So, what years were you there? I think you were there around a similar time, were you? 91 to 93. Okay. So, a little so bit later. The bubble was collapsing. The economic ah. bubble had lost its, you know, big really? expansion, but yeah. it was nothing like today. You know, it really was not that big of a problem for Japan. They had, they had bigger problems much later on. Right. Exactly. When these big, language schools closed down. And yeah. And so you and Tony, you must have been married for a similar amount of time that me and my husband as well. 30 years 30 this years? spring. Yeah. We've, we mm -hmm. just celebrated 30 years this year as well. Yeah. Very similar. One of the reasons why I've always enjoyed reading your books, because we have so many overlaps. I also have a good friend who has the very same ancestry that you do. She was born to a German mother and Indian father. So mm -hmm. of course I recommended you to her as well. So She's oh, actually, thank you. Yeah, she's actually living in India right now because her husband is the uh, principal of an international school there. So going back to Japan, what did you enjoy most about living in Japan when you were there? I think I loved that it was so different than the United States. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the way that people held on to traditions and considered them important and celebrated them. And it, th that does happen in the United States. I don't want to say mm -hmm. it doesn't exist, but I'm talking about people doing these shrine festivals in the streets, you know, going down the street with a palanquin on their shoulders, people making sake from the plums on their trees, mm. uh, people dancing in August at the Obon Festival, remembering their ancestors, all those kinds of things. The mochi that people would pound and eat at the new year. Yes. And because we were in this interesting little subgroup of military officer families, we had contact with some Japanese families that were interested in, say, improving their English. So we had people who were sharing these cultural gifts with us and inviting us into their homes. And it was an incredible privilege to be welcomed like that oh, as an yeah. immigrant. You know, we weren't like long-term immigrants, but still mm -hmm. for, for people from another country to be treated that way and have people share things about their lives. It, it was just a really, really happy time. Mm -hmm. It just made life a lot of fun. Yeah, I felt the same way. 
I did have some challenges when I first arrived in Japan because I was fresh out of college, a burgeoning young feminist. And I had a very different experience from my husband. He was teaching at a university and he was just wined and dined. And, <laughs> and I had a very different experience through my employer. So I found it really challenging to be a young woman there at times in comparison. Did you find that challenging at first as well? Or did you have a different experience? Well well, I mostly spent time with women. I mean, what most of my Japanese contacts were women. There were some men that I taught, that I, I taught English to Japanese sailors and um, naval officers. And I heard stories about things that happened to women in the workplace and women in the military that were distressing. However, those things didn't happen to me because, you know, I wasn't in a risky position. Hmm. You know, I was in a sort of like a, a very protected position mm -hmm. as a teacher, you know, a volunteer teacher. Usually I was volunteering. One thing I did notice that was funny is people would routinely guess that I was older than I was. Huh. And I was, <laughs> I was only, you know, 27 years old. And they thought that I was in my 30s. And at first I was like offended, but I but I realized it was because of the way that I spoke. I spoke more um, confidently, right forward way. Yeah. And I asked questions and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have like an office lady behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And th that was probably shocking. Did people inquire about your race when you were there? Like, were they not quite sure how to put you into a box or... I believe that they understood that I was Asian American mm -hmm. and that was actually a plus mm. for me. I considered it a plus because I just didn't get a lot of people gawking at me on the street ever. Mm. And also people would explain things to me sometimes in a way that I believe that they thought I had moved to Japan. I was learning and I needed to know these things about, you know, what something meant rather than I was just a, a tourist. So I kind of like that feeling that I could become part of the country, though never be completely Japanese. Right. Like, I didn't feel that there was racism toward India, you know, in my own experience. And everybody loves curry, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the best Indian food I had was in Japan, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, Osaka. Osaka is like, you know, huge food capital. And I never had Indian food before I lived in Japan. Because, you know, really in Portland, we didn't really have any Indian restaurants. Now we have tons. But when I was growing up, we didn't have really, we had like one Indian restaurant in town and it was very expensive. So there was an Indian restaurant like a block from the school that I taught at in Osaka. And I went there all the time. <laughs> and then I fell in love with Indian food. So... So let's talk a little bit about the state of publishing when you entered publishing in the 90s with respect to authors of color and books about people of color. Sure. So I, when, when I came back from Japan, I worked on my book for a few years and I had decided that I was going to write a mystery novel set in Japan, exploring the environment that I was so interested in and also looking at sort of the historical background of the American military in Japan. So, you know, those were sort of the themes in the book. And my heroine is a young woman whose mother is an American and her father is Japanese. So she's a hafu, as they would say, some or hanbunjin, a person who's half 
Japanese and a half something else. And she speaks Japanese very well, but she has difficulties securing the kind of employment she really wants to have. This is my character, and it was an amateur sleuth mystery, obviously, because she is a, an English teacher in Japan. She's not a police officer or anything like that. That makes it an amateur sleuth mystery. And on one hand, the publishing industry in the mid-90s was publishing a lot of women authors where the protagonist was also a female and doing something that wasn't necessarily police or a detective. You know, there were a lot of good mysteries where women were lawyers or they were, you know, mothers or they were caterers. There was just every permutation. So seeing that, I felt, you know, that this would this would be okay and that, you know, someone would be interested because this was something just a little bit different. It was a mystery set in another country. And I was really shocked, though, when I started going to conferences for the traditional mystery. And, you know, I was trying to learn as much as I could about the field. And, a, you know, a very prominent editor said in the seminar when someone asked her about mysteries set in foreign countries and which ones are going to be successful. She said only books that are set in England and maybe Italy are oh. successful as, <laughs> as mysteries. So I felt a little bit scared. And I, I think I remember ex exchanging glances with another writer in the room. And then I realized, wow, there really are not a lot of mysteries set in other countries. Mm. And fortunately, the agent I had was interested in other countries, and she took me on, and she wound up selling the book quickly to HarperCollins, and that was because they had taken a risk on a historical mystery set in Japan by Laura Jo Rowland. And she went on to publish many, many mysteries with her heroes, and you know these are all set in medieval Japan, they're samurai mysteries. Mm -hmm. So I did get in and I did wind up, you know, people were interested because this wasn't out there, but it took a long, long, long time for the publishing industry to wake up to other, other countries as places people would want to read about. I think that the fear with a lot of the big publishers is that the people who read the books are all white and they want to read about people that feel like them and that they can identify with. I think that's what it really was based mm -hmm. on and not understanding that, first of all, there's a whole realm of people reading books mm -hmm. of all kinds of people. And then secondly, people like traveling. So they, you know, they like that. The, yeah. the publisher I'm with now is a smaller publisher, Soho Press, and they've been around for about 40 years, and they publish mysteries set in dozens and dozens Ooh. and dozens of countries. They figured it out that people yeah. wanted to read about places like Ghana mm -hmm. and Norway <laughs> and, you, you know, France and Mexico and India, you know, they figured it out. And mm -hmm. so I'm very at home there because oh. I know that, you know, an international book is not 
a trend. It's like, it's just sort of their, their bread and butter is Mm -hmm. exploring the world through mystery. Uh, Well, that's just the opposite of the way I read white people only want to read books about themselves because I've always been attracted to books about people in different cultures. So that's why I love your books. (laughs) So I guess I'm your perfect customer. Maybe. Yeah. Well, the stereotype <laughs> is is wrong. Um, yeah. You know, another stereotype that I ran into when I decided to write about India was readers were fearful that all books about India have sad endings. Oh, huh. There are many books published that are sort of social exposés mm-hmm. that, you know, there's a lot of literary fiction about India mm-hmm. that is sort of very doom and gloom and atrocity mm-hmm. written. And I think there was a bias toward publishing stories like that. Ah, and it's only been recently that you're seeing more of the, you know, lighthearted books that are set in India as well as sad ones. And there's now, it's almost like a little mini boom <laughs> mysteries that are set in India. Oh, really? I mean, yours are the only ones that I've read that are in. Oh, yeah. There, there, yeah. there are other authors, too, oh. that are writing historically. I, I would say that there is more interest in historical mystery in India mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's harder to sustain an audience for contemporary mystery. Mm-hmm. And I think there that again relates to people's comfort levels. And I, it's not like I, I wrote a historical mystery because I thought, oh, this is something that is going to be more palatable. I wrote it because I wanted to tell the story of feminism in India. And I thought this would be a really good way to do it through the vehicle of a mystery. But it it, it just takes time. And the other thing that I, I love about writing colonial fiction and why I think fiction that's set in the British colonial period in India is catching on right now is there are people who feel, you know, in the United States who feel that the government is not their friend. Mm -hmm. The government is a friend to a small number of people and would rather oppress people of color. Yep. I just read this morning or last night that of all the COVID vaccines that the developing countries, actually India is ahead, but a lot of the other developing countries in the world are way, way behind in getting vaccines. You know, it's just one more example of the way the rich get richer globally. Mm -hmm. So going back to Reishimura, can you describe some of the adventures that you gave Reishimura for people who haven't read those books? Oh, gosh. So Reisha Mora starts out her adventures, leaves Tokyo to celebrate the new year by herself. And she goes to a mountain range called Hida Takayama. And when she's in this area, there are some very interesting guests, including a Scottish lawyer and an elite Japanese couple, the Nakamura's. And everything seems like it's going well between this little group. But then one morning she she goes out and she finds that the wife is dead in the snow. You know, so that was like, you know, untangling, you know, who are the suspects? And because it was a country house mystery with a lot of snow around the house, 
that sort of makes it almost like a classic English traditional mystery. Of course, it's set in Japan. And then the action moves back to Tokyo and there's all that exciting life there and what it's like to be a gaijin, a foreigner who's sort of living on the edge. I had fun with that. Maybe you could relate to that. Yes, yes, definitely. (laughs) The advantages of being a gaijin in Japan, you can get away with so much, you know, you get excused (laughs) for bad behavior (laughs) or just, you know, behavior that was different than the culture. There are other mysteries where, you know, there was one where she was buying a um, antique tansu chest for a customer and it turned out to be a fake and she had to untangle that. And then somebody died that was involved in the sale of the tansu. And so, you know, that was a good one. There was a mystery set in the flower arranging world. This is one of the areas where women who did not work outside of the home could achieve a lot of status. And one of the flower arranging teachers is murdered and Ray's own aunt is suspected because she didn't get along well with that teacher. So, you know, that's another one. So there was a lot of fun. And I think that all of the mysteries delved into some kind of a cultural art, whether it was cooking or fashion, or furniture. I also wound up repeatedly going back to historical settings like World War II. So did you do a lot of antique shopping when you lived in Japan? Is that why you were interested in the antiques world? Yes, actually, Mm -hmm. I did get sucked into it because all those Navy wives who are a little bit senior to me had houses full of Ah. antiques or so-called antiques. (laughs) (laughs) I got a tip that we could go that every Sunday there would be an antiques flea market at a different shrine. Mm -hmm. Did you ever go to those shrines? I went to one and I bought a few kimono. Yeah, it was really quite an experience, cultural experience, wasn't it? Yeah. So I bought, like you, I bought a lot of um, antique kimono or haori coats, which Mm -hmm. are a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. And then I would buy little bits of china, though, you know, china is hard to transport. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always, always looking for one of those tansu chests. Yes, I would love to have a tansu chest as well. I discovered this wonderful little, I don't know if you ever get to the Northwest at all, but I discovered this wonderful little Japanese antique store in Whidbey Island, Washington last year that was like going into old Japan. It was amazing. So if you ever get to uh, the Seattle area, you should check it out. Yes, I was in Seattle twice before um, the shutdown. Like, I think I went in 20, I was there in 2018 and probably 2019. That's a really good book town. It is. Yeah. And so is Portland. Waiting for you to come to Portland. Oh, I'd love to go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to have dinner when you come. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to wait for flying to get a little bit safer. I know, (laughs) I know, I know. People to come out of their homes. I know, I know. So how many trips during the Reishimura era, how many trips did you take to Japan while you were writing that series? Did you keep going back and forth? Yeah, let's think. I I might have gone back maybe four times, four or five times, I think. Maybe more. It's hard because there were a lot of books. So maybe I did go because... I tried to go a whole lot, but mm-hmm. once I had children, oh yeah, young children, it was really difficult to do that. So there are some Reishimura mysteries that have a Japanese theme 
but the adventure is actually in Washington, D.C. or California. Or Hawaii. Was it or Hawaii. Yeah, because yeah. we all went to Hawaii. It was a, <laughs> right. a military activity brought us to Hawaii. Uh-huh. Yeah. If I recall, towards the end of that series, I think I read in one of your newsletters or something, you had some frustrations w- with getting your further books published. Do I remember that correctly? After my ninth Ray Shimura mystery for HarperCollins, they weren't interested in publishing that series anymore. It was not growing in readership as largely as they would have liked. Even though you won all these awards and you were selling. and Yeah. And when you look back in hindsight at the numbers of of the hardcovers, I mean, they were really, they were really good numbers, but you know, I guess the person just got tired of it. The, Mm. it was the publisher in general, not my editor. Mm -hmm. So I wound up having the 10th book published by a smaller press. And what was difficult about that was they only created a very small printing print run. And then they weren't interested in going back to press. Like that wasn't their model. Like they were happy to sell 4,000 books when they could have maybe sold 20,000 books. Wow. They were, <laughs> that was just the way that they operated. And also I had to shorten my book. Oh, no. Because, uh, because of the cost of paper. And that was just not what my readers wanted. I know that wasn't what my readers wanted. So then after that, I took a pause. And that's mm-hmm. when I started writing about India. And I really, uh, I'm very, very glad that I did that. Because yeah. I think that this ultimately is the direction that has given me the most creative satisfaction. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I mean, you've just grown so much as a writer over the time I've been reading you. You did that one last Kizula Coast uh, novel. And what was that like? Did you go back to Japan after the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami? What happened then is I remember I was in living in Minneapolis and I had just finished the big draft of my first Indian book, which is called The Sleeping Dictionary. And it was being, you know, shopped around New York by my agent. So I had nothing on my hands. That earthquake happened. I was so concerned Mm. for people in Japan. And, you know, it had repercussions everywhere across all of Japan. Mm. People were struggling. So I felt very moved by it. And I just became so fascinated and obsessed with what was going on that this story came into my mind that Rachel Morak was involved in a missing persons case during that, you know, horrific tsunami. And so I wrote that book, but I did not make a big deal out of it to my agent because I didn't Hmm. want to sell it. Like I didn't want to sell it to that (laughs) last publisher or a different publisher. And I, I knew that if I did, they would want more. And I Ah. I just said, I want to write this book for now. I may write another one, but I don't want to tie myself down. Ah. So I wound up hiring my own editor, you know, who was a professional from New York who had gone out on her own and, you know, a cover artist. So I self-published that book. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. And how did that do compared to the other ones? Was it was it only self-published or? Yeah, I only wanted it to oh, be because wow. I didn't want, because the problem is once you get with <sighs> a, an actual publishing house and you have a contract with them, then they have things like they 
they get the right, the first right over your next book. Uh-huh. They often try to demand that you write more than one book. And uh-huh. so I just didn't want that. Uh-huh. I wanted more freedom mm. to decide. And, you know, right now, and in, in the way I operate now is I only do contracts one book at a time. Oh, And many people like to have multi-book contracts, uh-huh. but I love to have a one-book contract. Yeah. Well, it allows you more creative freedom, I'm sure, to choose yeah. what you want to write. Yeah. Right. So right now I'm with Soho and I've done the one book contract four times. Wow. So, you know, it's just like, it It seems like it It works really well for, for us. Well, I was really glad to, to read that novel. And then the other one that I read was uh, Ruth Ozeki's A Tale for the Time Being. Those are the only two books I've read about the earthquake. And I, th- I think it was very healing for those of us who had Japanese connections to read books about the experience. So I, I'm appreciative that you wrote that book. Oh, thank you. And yeah. I didn't, the thing that was sad was I didn't go to do the research. And the way I did the research about it is I talked to people in person and on and over the phone who had gone and volunteered there. Oh, I see. Right. You know, Japanese people that I that I heard about and was connected to. Mm-hmm. So that way I tried to get a picture for how it worked. Right. What are some of the ways I'm going to move on to India pretty quickly, but Closing out on Japan, what are some of the ways you've seen Japan change since the 80s? I haven't been back since I left. I really would love to go back. But what have you observed having been there early, mm. in the early 90s? And Okay, now? so the last time, I'm trying to think when was the last it's probably time? probably been a while that. since you... It was in the... It might have been like 2005. Uh-huh, or, right. Or, um, yeah, I think maybe around that time. Okay. Right. Well, you know, big changes in food. Oh, really? Yeah, just changes in the way people are eating more of foreign foods. Mm, Right. Not Mm -hmm. as healthy. Uh, Yeah. Um, You know, that was a negative. Uh What about the status and role of women? Did you feel like that changed uh, during that period? Well, reading the news, I know it has. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm look, I'm reading so many stories. Like now, we're hearing about women who are fighting back on having to wear high heels, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that things have been uh, revolutionized, but I'm not an on the scene observer. So Mm -hmm. I can't talk about it too much. I can only mention what I'm reading about. Right, right. And so do you think we've seen the last of Ray in your novel set in Japan? Have you moved on to India? I don't know. I'm not working on anything right now. You don't want to be tied down probably. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I, I don't want to. And it, it, it just then it takes all the fun out of it. So then you decided to uh, shift to historical fiction and dive into your ancestral culture a little bit more. Do you remember what made you shift? I started wanting to write about India quite a long time ago. Like I would say around, I was even thinking about it as far back as 1998, 1999. And the trouble was I had been like a casual visitor to India, whereas I had lived in a Japanese neighborhood when I was in Japan. So Mm -hmm. I had a different relationship and I had to think about, I I don't want to just do this like a a foreigner writing about India. I want to, I really have to have a story and figure out how I can learn and understand and become enmeshed in the world that I'm writing about. 
And, you know, as time passed, I realized that the place that I was staying, which is my stepmother's parents lived in Calcutta and my own family is from Calcutta. My dad's family is from there too. And I was staying there in this flat that was very, very close to where a lot of political unrest had been and also a lot of old elite institutions. And the historic preservation was was not bad where I was at that yeah. time. Calcutta had not been modernized to the extent that it is now. And each time I went back, more and more of the buildings that I loved and the streets I knew were were vanishing and, and shopping malls were going up. And I felt like I wanted to write about that world before it was completely gone. So I decided to write a historical novel that was set in the early 20th century about the waning days of colonial rule and a young Indian woman and what happens to her. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this is so many historical novels that I've read about the colonial period are about, you know, they're from a British point of view. And if there are any Indian characters in there that play a role, it's usually an elite man who's a mm. friend or adversary of the character. It's, mm -hmm. it's never an Indian woman. They were always servants. And, mm -hmm. and the fact is those British male writers were not able to have social relationships with Indian women. I mean, they mm -hmm. just weren't, unless it was like a transactional relationship, you know, mm -hmm. which you can imagine. There's a couple of ways it could be a transactional relationship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So I just decided that I was going to write a, a novel about the colonial experience from an Indian woman's point of view. And that's what I did. That book, that first book is The Sleeping Dictionary. I love that book. I need to reread it. I don't, so much. I don't often reread books, but talking to you and then also the author I interviewed this morning, I was like, oh, I have to go back and reread these books. These are some of my favorite books. So can you tell our listeners just a little mini summary of the plot of The Sleeping Dictionary? Um, the Sleeping Dictionary opens in the 1920s when there's a young girl who lives in a village. She's a peasant girl, illiterate, you know, really happy with her life. And there's a tidal wave and it sweeps away the village. And she happens to be in a higher part of the forest when it happens. So she escapes with her life, but the whole village is gone and she has to survive. And she wounds up being hospitalized and recovering and then being sent to mission hospital, being sent to a boarding school to work as a servant, as a maid. And she winds up picking up English there, which she uses in other parts of her life as she grows older. She has adventures along the way and winds up in Calcutta working in the household of a Indian civil service officer, a British man who's involved in trying to suppress the freedom movement. And she's just become interested in fighting for India's freedom. And the war comes. So it's sort of a great big saga. And there's a lot of romance. There's a mother-daughter story. There's story about the famine in Bengal in the 1940s. There's a story about the secret army of POWs that were captured by the Japanese Indian soldiers who actually fought against the British then to gain India's freedom. 
So there's just a whole lot there. It's over 400 pages. So <laughs> it's it's a great book to take on a holiday mm-hmm. or to settle down, you know, when you've got a few weeks to read. But compulsively readable at the same time. I mean, it was very accessible. Yeah. And did can you explain the meaning of the title? Yeah, sleeping dictionary is a term that, you know, we just heard it was in the Hobson Jobson dictionary, which was a um, dictionary of slang for British people who went to India so they could understand what was going on. And that was a term that was given to women who worked in the households of the East India officers and taught them things about the country. Like they taught them language, they taught them rules of hygiene, they taught them manners, And then, you know, the guys were really lucky that person would become their girlfriend or their wife. Have you ever read that book, Wave by Solali Darali Yagala? No, I haven't. Well, it kind of reminds me of the beginning of the book because it's about, it's it's nonfiction about a woman who's, it's just devastating. Her entire family is swept away in the 2004 Sri Lankan earthquake and tsunami. So like her two children... Her husband and her parents are all are all swept out to sea, and she's the only one who survives. So it's very similar to the opening of your novel. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm have yeah. to look for that. It's a beautiful book. It's very slim, but tragic, completely tragic. Because I'm fascinated by these stories of grit and resilience, I read these types of books, and amazing. So I loved hearing your interview with the historian the other day. So you met her in the hotel while doing your research, right? Yeah, you're talking about Durba Ghosh. Yes. And she is a professor of history at Cornell University who specializes in the Indian colonial period. And in order to make my series feel the way it does, I have to talk to historians. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would never be able to get these little details about things, you know, about relationships, about what the prison situation was like, about transportation. You know, I think that I probably have about five historians who've helped me and I'm Ah. so grateful to them all. Well, you know, I think taking on historical fiction, it just seems like there's so much more to to research than a regular novel. It just must be overwhelming. <laughs> you join down if you want to be serious. And and it yeah. really surprises me. There are people who write, say in the English Regency period, who write based on their researches reading other Regency novels. It's really oh, not that right. deep. I mean, some right. of them do it. Uh-huh. It's like really shocking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a friend who writes um, Elizabethan mysteries and she, and I was talking about another series to her and she said, oh my gosh, there's so many things that are wrong in those books. It's really painful <laughs> to me. And so I, I feel that way too. If I see something that's really wrong about India, it just makes me cringe. Oh. And I'm sure that I've made mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I really try to have my books read by people who know India and who know history before they come out in print. I mean, the Sleeping Dictionary must have required so much research. Yeah, it did. But the, and then, then the other part is being careful about not shoving too much. Yes, right. You need then to make it a story. You have to keep it a story. Yeah. Um, so like one of the ways that, I, you know, the books that I think did a really great job of that is Snowflower and the Secret Fan by Lisa C. Mm-hmm. 
which is a this big epic novel about, you know, these two girls who are friends and they have foot binding. Like they both have their feet bound, you know, because they're coming of age and they're going to get married and that's how they get to know each other. And the details about the foot binding and how that became a part of the story, that was really impressive to me. Mm. And that's a good example of how you can tell history. And then, of course, there was a revolution and they had to run away and they couldn't do that because Mm -hmm. they had these bound feet, you know, so there are all these cool things you can do when you say you want to go into a, a detail about historical life, you know, when you want to talk about clothing, or you want to talk about food, or you or in my case, I might talk about caste privilege. Mm -hmm. And how do you turn how does that turn on you? Things like that. So I had forgotten until I revisited your novel that your protagonist renames herself Kamala. So that Mm -hmm. must make you feel even more connected to Kamala Harris. (laughs) Yeah, it's very surprising. And also, Yes. So that book, the heroine in the end, she's chosen the name Kamala for herself. And this, the new books that I'm writing are a series about Bombay's first woman lawyer. And so that's another link. So I'm really hoping that Kamala Harris finds out about my books somehow, some way, because I think that they are made for her. They are made for her. How are you feeling about knowing someone who's half Indian is about to become VP? Oh, I'm very thrilled about that. And I'm also thrilled that her other side is Jamaican. Yes. I I think we're exactly the same age. And I imagine her going through her childhood and adolescence with a lot of the same things said to her that were said to me. And yet she kept on going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was in her early years of her work environment of, you know, being a lawyer and, you know, the law school years, things were quite different for women then. Mm -hmm. It's just like this whole continuum that she's been on. And I love that she is in this family, like she's married somebody and that that she has these wonderful stepchildren Mm -hmm. that are really close to her and that she does a lot of cooking She spent a lot of time in India, too. Mm -hmm. So she just seems like someone who can show all of us what it means to have different sides to who you are and to to be inclusive. Yes, I agree. She does really need to discover you, definitely. (laughs) You should send her a book. I wonder how you get get that to her. Have you seen the Mindy Mindy Kaling video with her when they're making dosa together? I did see that video. Oh, I yeah, love everyone that video. should go see that video. I love that video. Mm-hmm. I know. It's so endearing. I know. I love it. I'm so excited. So let's move on to Praveen Mystery. What made you decide to combine your mystery genre with historical fiction? Well, for one thing, I missed the mystery world, even though I had written this oh. big, you know, straight historical novel. And so I missed that. And So I thought I will combine the two things I love. I'm not going to give up Indian history because I've invested too many years researching it. I'd spent four years researching. So, you know, that's what happened. I went ahead and put those two together and brought it out with a, you know, very supportive new publisher, Soho Press. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about who you based the uh, character on and, and what kind of things she gets up to in your novels? 
Well, the first woman lawyer in the entire British Empire is a woman named Cornelia Sarabji. And she was a Christian woman from Pune, India. Her father was a Parsi who converted to Christianity. And her mother was actually a tribal woman who was, as a young baby, adopted by an English couple that couldn't have children. Hmm. So she had a really interesting background herself. And she identified ethnically as a Parsi and dressed that way. And for people who have never heard of Parsis, that's a word that describes a person born in India whose ethnic origin long, long time ago was in Persia and who was a follower of the Zoroastrian religion. You know, this is a monotheistic religion, one God and very progressive values. It turned out that the Parsis did very well in business. And my character, Praveen Mystery, has a family who's been in India for maybe 500 years. And, you know, they are Indian as can be, but they also are as Parsi as can be. It's a tiny group, maybe 50,000 left. And most of them live in Mumbai, as Bombay is now called. And that was the business center, still is the biggest business city in India. And so the Parsis prospered and they also dominated the legal field. So it makes a lot of sense mm. for my lawyer, Parveen, to be you know, a Parsi and living in that city. And mystery actually is a last name in the Parsi community. And it deals with construction. It's for, it's for people that work in construction, like contractors. And she has that last name because earlier people in the family were involved in building the city. Yeah. So I read on your website that many Parsi families tended to be progressive and welcomed daughters back home if they left their marriages. That I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Well, the the question is how many? Yeah, they did they did welcome their daughters back, but I wouldn't say that scores of people <laughs> left their marriages. Uh -huh. More often people would just bear it. Yes. But you could go home more easily if you were a Parsi <laughs> than if you were a Hindu. I just think it's so interesting that your character goes to basically help women in Purda because men couldn't go visit these women in Purda. Did the real uh real life Cornelia do those types of things? Does she work with women in Purda? Yes. Um, Cornelia Sarabji wrote memoirs where she talked a lot about going to represent the rights of women who were living in oh. Purda. And often crazy things were happening. People were stealing their estates. They were trying to kill them. They were trying to do away with their children. Also, very bad things happened to women in royal families, Hindu women in royal families. So she has plenty of stories about that. So mm -hmm. she really served a women that were Hindu, women that were Muslim. She was quite broad in her reach and where she traveled. And she even had a paid position that the um, civil service created for her where she would go and investigate what was going on, what they were worried about somebody that they hadn't heard from and that who was a threat of 
losing something. And of course, those tended to be more of elite women that the government cared about, you know, elite families, because they didn't want to have scandals and, you know, princely states going crazy. I write about that in the second Purveen book, which is called The Satapur Moonstone. I love this series. I'm really excited for the next one. Your characters are not only resilient, but they're also really strong women. What was your inspiration for creating such badass women? Were you raised around a lot of badass women? Where does that come from? Well, you know, when I was young, it actually was the feminist movement. It was the 1970s feminist movement. And I remember knowing who Gloria Steinem was. I remember reading Ms. Magazine. I believe I had a subscription to Ms. or our household had. Uh, I did too. (laughs) (laughs) So it was very normal to think about women's rights. Mm -hmm. If I was going to write books about women in India, I wanted to show the strength of women in India. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to make just some sob story. I think there were plenty of those that are out there Mm, um, about subjugation and people not being able to triumph. And one thing that's been very moving to me is I've been having some Zoom meetings with readers in India since the pandemic came about. Oh, I was going to ask you that question, how your novels have been received there. Well, the young women are really excited about the character and they feel that she's relevant for them today as they continue to battle for their own rights. She's very popular that way. And then there also are people who just love the history. They love Mm -hmm. to hear the names of old buildings and old restaurants and talk about the way things were done. You know, that that hits them. They like that nostalgia aspect. Mm -hmm. Have you had any backlash about writing these protagonists in a non-stereotypical way? Because I mean, really, you kind of are going against the grain in many ways. Well, I don't think so. I think one concern one person came to me once and said, you know, you you live in the United States, you mm. shouldn't be writing about the colonial period. And this mm-hmm. was a terrible time. And, uh, you know, I heard something like that. But the person hadn't yet read the book. And she oh. I talked to her about <laughs> some, I talked to her about some others, too. You know, you could think about that as being an other voices concern. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, that even though you have Indian heritage, you didn't grow up Mm-hmm. in these conditions. So do you have the right to describe them? So, and that that's everywhere you go, you know, right. that the closer to the character's life is, is usually seen as, you know, being able to share more and to be able to understand more sides to a situation, for sure, I would say. So since Japanese and Indian are my two favorite cuisines, can you give us one favorite Japanese dish and one favorite Indian dish that you like? Oh, Marie, do you remember that there was a dish? It was like a grilled mochi with miso on the outside. It was oh. like a kebab. Oh, yeah. with, and, and I think yeah. I had it only a few places. I don't think I, I think I have grown. I have an appreciation for mochi more now since I've left Japan mm-hmm. than I did when I was there. But I remember them grilling those outside, like at festivals and things. Yeah. 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 That kind of thing. I love the grilled mm-hmm. festival foods mm-hmm. a whole lot. I like fermented foods a lot too. So yes. there were all kinds of things. I didn't like natto, but I liked yes. all those pickles. Yes. And red bean paste. You know, again, I like red bean bean paste much more now than I did when I was living there. (laughs) So 
So do I. Yeah. And what about Indian? Well, you know, dosa is a great, great dish. As mm-hmm. we were talking about that video that mm-hmm. Pamela Harrison, uh, Mindy Kaling making it. Yes. That's something I don't make. Mm-hmm. I do make lots and lots of vegetable curries and chicken curries at home. My favorite cuisine within India is the food of Kerala. Oh. I just love that. The South Indian, mm-hmm. it's very low in oil and high in spice and super, super healthy. Mm, Yum. I love that. So when the world opens up again, where will you travel to first? What are you dreaming about in your travel dreams? The first trip I think would be to my family in Minnesota. Uh, (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, But probably the next trip would be to India. And Uh I just have to see, you know, we just have to hope that these vaccines are you know, it might be a couple years, who knows? Right. Thinking back over your life, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I, you know, I just can't do those on the fly. I'm sorry. That's okay. No problem. Yeah. No problem. Oh, I, I know. I Malala Yousafzai. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. that's a good Malala one. Malala was incredible in the way that she stood up to the Taliban and went to school and, you know, was so influential in starting that school. Yes. And continued to speak out afterward. Yeah. So I would say that she pretty much wowed me from the moment I started reading about her in the news. And I'm glad that she's still continuing to be a force for social change in the world. Yes. Last year, I read a book that she edited edited called We Are Displaced. Have you heard about that book? No, I haven't. She's collected stories of other refugees. And it's it's wonderful. I led a book group around that. And she's the editor of it. And so her own story, she doesn't really touch on her story as much because she's written a book about that. But I, I would recommend that. Well, this has just been such a pleasure, Sujata. I've been such a a longtime fan of yours. So I've just loved this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, and you too, Marie. I wish you all the best in this, you know, new year, hopefully a new year of good health and happiness. Yes, I hope so too. And I'm looking forward to the next Praveen Mystery novel. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it coming out and it's going to be in June. So I think that at least locally, I'll be able to go outdoors and sign up. Yes, good. What's the title? It's called The Bombay Prince. The Bombay Prince. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. My pleasure. Have a good evening. Okay. You too. Bye. I love hearing about Sujata's childhood, discussing our shared adventures in Japan, reviewing her books and how she writes them, and marveling over Kamala Harris, who is the same age as both of us. Don't forget, you can find photos of Sujata, her research, links to purchase her books, and other details on my website, www.fertilegramcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Next week, my third writer on resilience is Julie Lithcott-Hames, writer, speaker, and former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean. Her first book was New York Times bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto. I read her moving and inspiring second book, Real American, a memoir, which was my top nonfiction read for 2020. I highly recommend it. She has a third book coming out in April, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.